Now, here we are in 1 Samuel, and we're looking at David, and David is on a fabulous career trajectory, wouldn't you say? He's been anointed the king of Israel, and he's still a little kid. And he has distinguished himself to Saul, the king of Israel, personally. He plays his harp. Saul feels better. Wow, I want you around all the time. So here he is, right there next to the king, the throne, the power, the court. He's in there. But then he distinguishes himself by having the courage and the confidence in the Lord to go out and kill Goliath. Nine and a half feet tall. A human tank. And David manages to hit the one spot that is not armored and take his head off. Everybody goes nuts. Saul says, I want you on my staff permanently. I don't want you to go home anymore. Well, he goes on to become a commander of a thousand. And he behaves himself wisely. He marries the king's daughter. Fabulous career trajectory. And David is exceptional. We expect God to bless him. We're not surprised. But then, we don't expect what happens now. That David loses everything. Everything in his life falls apart. Now, this is not theology that is very popular nowadays, but is theology that is true, that God is molding and shaping David's character. And he's making it what he wants David to be. And he uses difficulties and danger, dire straits. But everything is going to turn out good for David. Because where he is, is in God's hand. These are the things we're going to look at today. I'm reading in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. And it says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Now I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. 
Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Now, if you look at verse 30 of the previous chapter, just before the beginning of chapter 19, it says, then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. And because David is victorious and behaving himself wisely, that is the trigger for Saul to become David's enemy. And he thinks, if David is prospering, I am losing. If he loses, then I win. Now this is a kind of thinking that is called zero-sum game. And all that means is that If I win, you lose. If you lose, I mean, if you win, I lose. But both of us cannot be winners. So it's you or me. And this is the way the devil thinks. So this brings in, of course, competition and envy and jealousy and hatred and especially against David, because it's all self-centered, and it's self-preservation at all costs. There's no love in a zero-sum relationship. Does everybody get that? It's me or you, and I prefer me. So Saul gives the orders to kill David. And Jonathan pushes back with reasoning and logic and facts. And Saul is convinced. He goes, you're right. You're right. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. So he's not going to get killed. And he swears by the Lord. All right? And everything's okay until David's next victory and then Saul reverts to jealousy and fear. So, verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. 
And McCall took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and set my enemy away so that he's escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? So David goes in to play for Saul. Saul's having a bad day. <laughs> play the, the harp and it must mellow him out. But Saul's kind of playing with a spear and this impulse comes into his mind. I could just pin him to the wall. And he tries, but David gets away. But this time it's permanent. And Saul sends a hit squad to David's house to watch him to kill him. And David's wife helps him to escape. So now David's on the run. Verse 18, David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now it was told Saul, saying, take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers. And they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again, the third time. And they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth in Ramah. Then the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? <laughs> this is the third time this proverb has popped up. And the point is, they couldn't believe it the first time. Here's a guy who doesn't have any contact with God necessarily. He's kind of like these guys you see a lot in the world. Nice guy, stays clean, pays his taxes, not too toxic, has no idea about God whatsoever. Nothing to do about God. You would never imagine this guy to get religion. It's like, what? Him? Saul? Now, here's David running to Samuel, his mentor, the one who anointed him king over Israel. And he's telling him everything that's going on. And I bet David is freaked out. 
He's on the run. Now, he's getting counsel, protection for a little while, but Saul sends a hit squad. And there is Samuel and David and a group of prophets. It's like a school. And here comes the hit squad. Nobody is defending themselves. But God causes his spirit to fall upon these guys and they prophesy. They are so overcome with the greatness of God that they are effectively neutralized. Maybe Saul gets together a rougher, tougher group of hit men and sends them, but it doesn't matter. God neutralizes them. They're just overcome with the greatness of God. A third group, nothing. So you can imagine Saul getting a little frustrated. You pansies, you weenies. If you gotta do something right, you gotta do it yourself. And I wonder if he's thinking, I bet I know one guy that the Spirit of God will not come upon. And that's me. So he's looking for him. And he goes there and he is intending to kill him. And he can't do it because what do you know? The Holy Spirit has no problem coming upon him. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought, maybe I'm broken. Maybe I don't function right. Maybe the Holy Spirit comes upon everybody else but me. Because my Holy Spirit thing is broken and I can't get it fixed. Have you ever thought that? Everybody else in the world is spiritual but me. But you know what, that's not true. The Holy Spirit can and will fall upon you. And Jesus was saying, you know, if you got a son and he comes to you and says, can I have some bread? Would you give him a rock? If he comes to you and says, dad, can I have a fish? Would you give him a snake? And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, won't your Father in heaven more easily and gladly give you the Holy Spirit? It's not that big a deal, and you're not broken. So ask him. Ask him to fall upon you and to fill your heart, and he will do it. If he can come upon Saul, he can come upon you. Do you get that? Good. This, this part makes me happy. Of course, you know the Holy Spirit came upon a donkey one time. So seriously, folks, nobody here is disqualified. <laughs> Good. Now, I also want to notice verse 19. It was told Saul, saying, take note, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Now this begins a whole career of people telling Saul where David is. A whole crowd of informers 
who as soon as they see David, they tell Saul. Because if you can find David for Saul, he's gonna give you a reward. It's gonna go good for you. You're on Saul's side. He has the power to bless you and reward you and set you up. So there's financial and otherwise incentive to inform on David. And again, this is a zero-sum game. If I tell on David, I win. So people might appear friendly to David, but they also might inform on him. And David comes to realize he can't trust anybody. Everybody get that? He has had respect from everybody in Israel, but now anybody he meets might turn on him. So that's kind of a tough situation to be in. Chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. Why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. Then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I've found favor in your eyes. And he said, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I'll do it for you. And Jonathan said, David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all of the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, if you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there's iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then Jonathan, uh, David said to Jonathan, who will tell me here? What if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to, to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. He loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by this stone easel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. So here, David goes to his best friend in the whole world. He has a covenant of the Lord with him. They have a special bond and relationship Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And David feels the same way. They're two guys that love God, and because they love God, they love each other. And it's a good, healthy, committed male relationship. And he comes to David, or David comes to Jonathan, and he's just saying, what is the deal? What is going on? And Jonathan says, what, what, what? And he actually can't believe David. And he thinks David's kind of worked up over nothing. He says, wait a minute, my father hasn't told me a thing, so I don't think this is what's going on. They're kind of having a back and forth conversation. Kind of like, you know, I, you might be a little flipped out for nothing. I think it's not as bad as you think. And David says, are you kidding? I am that close to getting killed. So, Jonathan may not believe him, but he says, look, I'm going along with you on this. Like a friend. May not be convinced yet, but he says, look, let's do this. And here's the occasion to find out. It's the new moon. Two days. And David should be there because he's part of the king's government. And if he doesn't show up, it is a slight and an insult. But here's the excuse. David's family has a yearly sacrifice. Everybody needs to be there. David said, would you please just let me go? And I said, sure, fine. And if Saul says, oh, all right, there's no problem. But if Saul blows his top, then we know Saul is determined to get David. And again, they renewed their relationship, their covenant in the Lord. Jonathan says, 
I will warn you, I will tell you the truth, I will not betray you. So they set up codes so that Jonathan can actually communicate what is going to happen. They set up signs and signals. And then the day comes. Verse 24. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on his seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, well, something has happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he's unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go. For our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I've found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to eat at the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? I, I threw that one in. <laughs> For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he's grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. So it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows, came back to his master. But the lad didn't know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we both have sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, 
and Jonathan went into the city. So, first night of the feast, Saul doesn't say anything. He goes, well, maybe it's a fluke. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe everything's okay. But the second night, he's not there. And you already know that there's problems. Because Saul cannot even bring himself to say the name of David. From here on in, he always calls him the son of Jesse. And if you don't use a person's proper name with the son of whoever you are, it's a very derogatory way to refer to somebody. And so on the second day of the feast, he says, where is the son of Jesse? And Jonathan tells him what they said, and, and Saul just blows his top and even throws his spear at Jonathan. So now Jonathan has to give the bad news to David. And he's got the signal set up so that he can tell David, but the, the kid doesn't know. See, Jonathan had to figure out a way to get out to the field to tell David without anybody suspecting what's going on. So he says, I'm gonna shoot some arrows. And I'm gonna bring in my little gopher here to go get them. They're expensive. So there's a reason for Jonathan to be out there. Then he gives all the bows and arrows to the kid, says, go back in the city. I'll, I'll be in in a little bit. And he tells David. And it's really hard. It's really hard. Because this is the last support, help, stability for David. David now does not have a job. He has to leave the court. He's an outlaw. He's had to leave his wife. She can't come with him. He can't live at home with any of its comforts, any of its stability. He has nothing. And he's lost his family. They can't help him without Saul taking revenge on them. He has no income, no security. Saul is hunting him to kill him. People are informing on him. He can't trust anybody. He can't stay with Samuel, his mentor. He has to leave him. And he even has to leave Jonathan, the one guy he can trust to not betray him. They have a covenant of the Lord. There's no question that Jonathan would support David. And yet, he has to, David has to leave the one guy he knows he can trust. No solid support from a solid friend. Now this goes against our theology, doesn't it? because we expect that the anointed of God is gonna be blessed, that everything goes right. If God is blessing you, then you're gonna have a life different from other men and things aren't gonna to happen to you. 
you're going to have angels in front of you throwing out rose petals in your path. Angels will guard your feet lest you strike your foot against a stone. You marry the king's daughter, you win every battle. But this doesn't even look like God is there, does it? Everything is going wrong. And if you just look at it, it looks like there is no God. It looks like Murphy's rule. Rules in your life. You know what, Murphy's, I didn't mean that, Martha. It's not yours. Murphy's law says if anything can go wrong, it will. Murphy's law means every day is Monday. <laughs> and that's life. So see, you have to know what God is doing. You have to be able to see the things that are not seen here to understand what God is doing. And what God is doing is he is humbling David greatly. He has stripped from David anything that he could rely upon. There's nothing there that David could get help from. So that means that David must look to God alone for help. Now that's hard, isn't it? It seems harsh. That seems unfair of God. David is thinking this. He says, what have I done? What is my sin? What did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. Why is this piano falling on me from heaven? What did I do? Because he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything wrong. God is not punishing him. Do you know that if God wants to kill us, this is a really inefficient way of doing it? If he wants to kill us, that's it, we're done. So you can't think, oh, God is trying to kill me. He's letting the devil have me for a toy. You know how cats play with mice? And they just bat them back and forth, and the mouse is just going, eh. and the cat goes, oh, man, this is fun. <laughs> and we think, well, this is what I am. God is out there juggling galaxies, and he forgot that I'm a, I'm a toy for the devil. And you know, if you push it, it squeaks. <laughs> oh, this is so fun. What a great noise. That's not what's going on. This is how you learn that God is sufficient. And you will never learn that any other way. What he does is he strips us down so that we don't have those things we think we need. And you live so long without them that you can actually go, take my pulse here. Huh, 
What do you know? Still alive. And I thought I needed that, and I needed that, and I needed that. But I'm still alive. I guess I don't need that. Now, I like it. I want it. But I don't have to have it. I can still live without that. But there is one thing I cannot live without. I must have God. And if I have God, I will have everything that I need. Now, the Apostle Paul learned this. He says, I have learned the secret of having everything and having nothing. I know how to abase. That means I know how to have a really skinny, dangerous, unpleasant, uncomfortable, life-threatening time. And I know how to abound. I know how to have fun when I've got enough money, enough food, clothing, everything's great. <laughs> this is fun. But I'm not holding on to it like, if I don't get this, I quit. I'm not blown away when things are rough. And I'm not sedated to think this is it. This is what my life is all about when I've got all this stuff. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, you see, you never figure this out until everything is stripped away. Wilderness. Have you noticed in the Bible how many people encounter God in the wilderness? God brings Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. There's nothing else around them. There's no businesses. There's no profession. There's no Netflix. There's nothing. Why? Because with everything stripped away, it's just you and God. Same with Elijah. Elijah has this tremendous encounter with the prophets of Baal, wipes them out, everything's great. Jezebel says, you know what? I'm gonna kill you tomorrow. He runs off to the wilderness. And it's only there that he encounters God who says, what are you worried about? You're not the only one left. I got 7,000 men in Israel whom you know nothing about who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We're still doing okay. Here's three things. I want you to do them. Can you get that? John the Baptist preaches repentance to Israel in the wilderness. Why? Because you leave everything else behind and you go out there and it's you and God and he says, unless you repent, you will perish. This is worth more than everything else you left back there in the city. And this is a good reason to drop everything and come out here and to hear the word of the Lord that after me one is coming whose sandals I'm not fit to tie. 
This is all your life and future, right here and now, with no distractions, no insignificant things that will get in your way and say, hey, I'm really important. You need a new deodorant. And this is important. That was a time bomb, wasn't it? In the face of possible social disgrace, nothing is more important than your new deodorant. No, I'm sorry. Not anything is more important than you and where you're at with God. And you have to know God. You have to know God. And so God is not being mean. And it's not the devil. God is doing this. And he's doing this to David so that David will prize and cherish this covenant with God above everything else. And at the end of his life, he says, I have a covenant with God ordered in all things and secure. This is all my desire. So, God's teaching David that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, David already knew that because Moses wrote it down. He knows that. Yeah, but you have to experience it. Big difference. All three up here. Hey, I believe everything. I even believe my Bible is bound in genuine leather. It says so right in the Bible. Yeah, but have you experienced it? It's, it's quite a different thing to realize I'm depending on God for my daily bread. Now, David is going to go on to write, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Well, how do you know that, David? Because I'm alive and standing in front of you, you pinhead. You don't survive what I survived without God being merciful and gracious to you. I am the evidence. David is going to write, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. How do you know that, David? Because I'm his sheep and he's kept me alive and he's tended me and cared for me and I know that goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I know it. So see, there's something more important than just living a nice, safe life. And I know that in each one of our hearts, all I want is a nice, safe life. Can I just have that? Why do I have to have danger? Why every week 
Do I get to say, oh, well, God helped me with my finances this week? <laughs> it's the same old thing, but you know what? Every week I'm happy because I made it one more week. See, there's something more important than having a nice life, and that is to learn humility. You think to yourself, I don't need humility. I need my finances. I will trade you humility for my finances. How about that? God says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. So along with humility, I'm going to give you understanding. See, you grasp the importance of it. And you will learn to value not being self-centered. Because this is what God wants. God wants a king for Israel who's not thinking about himself. Because Israel already has a king who's thinking about himself. And no good comes of it. So God is going to prepare a king for Israel who is a man after his own heart, who will do all his will, who is humble, submitted, and obedient. And it will be the best for that king, but it will be the best for everybody. That's what God wants. It may not necessarily be what David wants, but it's what God wants. And God is going to mold and shape and create David's character. That is the most important thing because the character that God molds is going to last forever. And therefore, he takes infinite pains, molding us, shaping us, preparing us for eternity. So, you know, there's a teaching in the Christian church that says that if you're right with God, then nothing goes wrong in your life. You're going to always be healthy and you're going to be prosperous. And if you're not, if you get sick, it must be because you haven't got enough faith. Now, that theology is not found in the Bible. It is taken from parts of the Bible, and the context is twisted and contorted to say something that God doesn't say. Because God does not promise the believer in Jesus a smooth, easy life. He said specifically, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself Pick up your cross and follow me. Is there any health or wealth or prosperity in that one? And the net effect of that teaching means that those who believe that teaching are not prepared for when God reaches in and does things and changes up life and strips away support, takes away health, 
takes away prosperity. And it looks like it contradicts that theology that came right out of the Bible. Is the Bible true? What's going on? That's why you gotta read the whole Bible, whether you feel like it or not. You gotta get the whole story. Because you know, if health and wealth and prosperity is true, then what about Job? He was sick, he had problems. And Paul must have really sinned against God. He had three shipwrecks. And that's before the fourth one. <laughs> How about Jesus? He got crucified. <laughs> Contradiction. It doesn't make sense. It's not true. Here's the biblical teaching. Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. To perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. And we are perfected in the same way. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So let's say you're going through a difficult time. It's not the devil, and it's not God punishing you. It's not because you've done anything wrong, and you may have done something wrong. And you're thinking, I know it's because of this, I know it's because of this, oh. It's not. Your sins were all laid on Jesus. And again, if he wanted to kill you, this is a really inefficient way to do it. What he's doing is training you, disciplining you, molding your character and giving you understanding. You are learning about him. And you know what? Your salvation is right on schedule. As much as if God were in heaven holding a stopwatch, saying, that's it, he's done, get him out of there. On to the next one. So here's what we do. Here's how we face things. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You don't have to be afraid to confess your sins and to humble yourself before God and say, God, here I am. 
please save me. Please work in me. And God says, I will do this. In fact, this is what the proverb says. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. God is really irritated with the wicked who's offering a sacrifice, giving to God. Look, God, here's a, here's a cow without blemish burning before you. Good, huh? And God is provoked and irritated. He says, you know what? You're making like you're a good person and I see your heart and I see the wickedness and it irritates me because you're lying to me. And I don't enjoy being lied to. It irritates me. But here's, here's an upright person, and this is when an upright person prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I lack every spiritual thing in my life. It is devastating to me. I am not spiritual. Would you please have mercy on me and forgive me and make me a man after your own heart? You know what he says? <laughs> I love you. You know why? Because God desires truth in the inward man. And as long as we're saying, hey, I'm a great guy, God goes, He's provoking me because he thinks I'm stupid and I can't see. I see everything. But here we are agreeing with God. God, you see my heart. I see my heart. I'm appalled. I am appalled. God, if you don't save me, then kill me. Please work in my life. And God says, I will. I delight in answering your prayer even though you're asking me because I can give it because there's more where that came from and I will give you everything you need because you're being honest and I can deal with that. And see, that's what he's doing. He's stripping all that stuff away till it's you and God and you say, God, I can't do this. God, I'm not enough. God, I'm on my own. God, I'm sick and I need you. And he says, good. You think you're being a bother to God because you're asking for so much. And he says, come on. You're asking God for what he already wants to do in you. And he's going to answer that prayer. Does everybody get that? Good, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for thinking good thoughts toward us, not about punishment, not about vengeance, but instead you have a good future for us. Beyond this life, you're preparing us for eternity. And so, Lord, we want to be humble before you and not fight and say, Lord, it is you. You work in my life.
You make me the person you want me to be. Not my will, but yours. Please wash my sins away for Jesus' sake. And we thank you, Lord, that you care enough to do this. That you would take such trouble in working in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you are perfecting us and that you will not stop until we are in your presence, blameless with great joy. We trust in you to finish the work that you start. We commit ourselves to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.